Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, and we will begin our reading at verse 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. These things are right I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. We trust that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his own holy and errant and infallible word. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I do thank thee for this opportunity to be here in this church. God, I thank thee for the years of faithfulness of their pastor, And standing behind this pulpit so many years preaching, thus saith the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless this congregation, that they would know the rich hand of God resting upon them, and a breaking forth upon the right hand and the left, and inheriting the nations and those that lie around about them. Lord, we come to the place of prayer because we recognize that unless the Spirit comes, all is vain. As the hymn writer said, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. And Lord, we would ask for that special unction and the special ability that comes from the Holy Spirit. I would pray that I would know what it is to preach with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would give me that ability to preach that comes from thee. I pray that my preaching and my teaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit of power, that this church's faith would not stand in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. And Lord, I pray, give that unction that makes preaching not just easy, but makes it effective and ministers to the hearts of people. And Lord, we want to be careful to give thee all the honor, the glory, for thou art eternally worthy of it. I pray that we would see see no one save Jesus only today. We ask it in Jesus' precious and marvelous name. Amen. Our text for this morning is found there at the verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Today, you and I, we live in a culture, we live in a society that relishes uncertainty and relativism. There are so many people all around us that just do not know what it is they are to believe. I've never seen a society in my own culture, my own generation, that is so uncertain and just does not know what to believe. They are very agnostic about many things. But in this text that we are reading, we find sure and certain truths 
Here in our text, we actually find one of the first confessions of the early church. And I wonder, have you ever considered why we as a church, we as a denomination have a confession of faith? Some would prefer not to have one, but there are very many positive benefits to a good confession. And this text actually supports such statements of faith. Look with me at the very first line of our text. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That one little phrase, without controversy, is just one word in the Greek language, but it is very significant, and it only occurs here once in the entirety of the New Testament. Vine defines this word to mean confessedly. So thus, this provides us a scriptural warrant for being what we call confessional. But what does that word confessional even mean? By confessional, we mean this, that the church officially adopts, knows, loves, and binds itself to a confession, such as our church does with the Westminster Standards. But there's something you and I must understand. The Westminster Standards... The 1689 London Baptist Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Belgic Confession of Faith are all subservient to the Word of God. In this great confession that the church is making here, this great confession is regarding the mystery of godliness. Now, what is this mystery of godliness that is being referred to here? This mystery of godliness is referring to the entire spectrum of God's revealed plan of salvation. And this confession is therefore one that is anchored in the truths of the gospel. And what follows in this text are three couplets which summarize the gospel. We see it there. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Not only did the church then need such a confession on which to stand, but I submit to you today that the church must stand strong upon this confession today. For there are those in our day within the visible professing church who would deny the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, that would deny His vicarious blood atonement, that would deny that our Lord has even ascended and rose again from the grave. They would even deny that He has been exalted far to the right hand of the throne of God. And what is it that these churches do? They take scissors to their very confession. And for that matter, the very word of God. And they cut the very heart out of it. The gospel. For when there is an attack on the person of Christ, you mark it down. There is an attack upon the gospel of Christ. And the great danger today is this, that if you move away from these truths presented by the apostle, you move yourself away from the gospel. So in a world that is tossed about with every wind of doctrine, here are fundamental truths on which you and I can plant our feet on for time and eternity. So today I call you to stand upon this confession that is founded upon our text. 
So it's in light of this that I want to bring the message to you this morning. Truths we must confess. Truths we must confess. And this confession is a wonderful summary of the Christian faith and the person and the work of Christ and something that will guard us from heresy and apostasy. So let us consider these lines together. I want you to see with me the first truth we must confess is the incarnation. Look with me in our text. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Here in our text is brought together both natures of our blessed Redeemer. We find his divinity, God. And then we find his humanity was manifest in the flesh. Both of them brought together his divinity and his humanity. And what a wonder of wonders. God appeared to mankind and human form. But this glorious truth of the incarnation and the coming of the God-man stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, we have that glorious messianic promise that there would be one born of a woman. There would be a coming seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And that is none other than the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. We see this prophesied in the book that I love to call the Gospel of Isaiah. And there in Isaiah, we find in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, this wonderful verse that we're familiar with. That a woman, a virgin, would conceive and bring forth a son. And that virgin would call that son Emmanuel. There in that one verse, you have his humanity, a son would be born. But you also have his divinity, his name would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And it would be a supernatural birth. For we read there that, his, uh, that he would be born of a virgin, not of natural generation, but of supernatural generation. We also read in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. That this child would be born, a son would be given, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and upon his shoulders would be the government of the world. Here we find again his divinity and his humanity, a son, a child given, coupled together with this idea that he is the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity. Here brought together in one. We find it in the Gospel of John. In John 1 in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. This speaks to us of the uh, pre-existence of the son. And the word was with God. He is co-existent with the father. And the word was God. He is co-equal with the father. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this glorious incarnation took place in the fullness of time, Paul said. But we also read that he was manifested in 1 John 3, 5 to take away our sin. He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And time would fail us to sit here and to speak about 
how the Gospels reveal his divinity and his humanity. We read in the Gospel of John, whenever Nathanael came to him, Jesus said, before you even came, he said, I saw thee under the fig tree. We read him speaking as well to the religious leaders of his day, saying, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones, ready to stone him, because he made himself out to be God. We read in the book of John, his wonderful I am statements, and perhaps the greatest is when Judas came, there in the garden with that rebel band. And there they said, are you the Christ? And Jesus simply said, I am. And as he spoke those words, we read in the scriptures that the entire crowd fell backward because it was a recognition of his divinity. This is a demonstration that Jesus was more than just a man. He was the God man. But we also read that he was true humanity. For he tired, he thirsted, he grew hungry, he bled. He was touched, the Hebrew writer said, with the feelings of our infirmities, but yet he was without sin. And it is this truth of the incarnation that the liberal and the Bible denier attacks vehemently. Why? Because if there is no incarnation, then there is no salvation. The incarnation provides to us a clear proof that God keeps his covenant promises. He promised a seed would come to deliver his people, and God did precisely that. It is this doctrine, this doctrine of the incarnation that marks Christianity as a supernatural religion. For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Christ did not come to this earth to bring about a moral reformation. Christ did not come to this earth to bring about greater enlightenment. Christ did not come to this earth to even bring you personal gain. But Christ has come to bring salvation to all that would believe in him. God came in the person of Christ to forgive us of our sin. In Matthew 1, 21, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sin. To undo the supernatural birth of the Redeemer undoes any idea of the new birth in the Christian. If there is no supernatural birth of Christ, then there can be no supernatural regeneration in the heart of God's people today. Not only this truth of the incarnation, but I want you to notice with me, secondly, the second truth we must profess is this vindication. Look with me. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. Now, this word justified, many agree, can be translated here and does mean vindicated. And what he's saying here is that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Now this phrase, vindicated by the Spirit, indicates that he is shown to be the Son of God through the agency of the Holy Ghost. Now think about it. The Holy Ghost proves that he is the Son of God throughout his entire life. We see the Spirit in the life of Christ from the very beginning, in the incarnation 
In Matthew 1.18, Mary was found with child by the Holy Ghost. We see the Spirit anointing Christ at his baptism. In Matthew 3.16, that as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God is there, descending upon him like a dove, fulfilling the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 11 and verse 2, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. John the Baptist said, you will know who the Messiah is. And they, they said, well, how will we know? Upon whom ye see the Spirit of God descending and remaining the same as he, which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John 1 and verse 33. We also see that in the ministry of Christ, that Jesus cast out devils by the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, 28. He said, if I by the Holy Spirit cast out devils, then indeed the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see in John 3.34 that the Spirit was given to Christ without measure. But also in Acts 2.33 we read that the Spirit was sent down in accordance with Christ's promise to convert men. In Acts 2.33 we read that Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand. And the Father sent forth the promised Holy Ghost. Which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said in John 15.26 that I must go away. And if I go away, the Comforter will then come unto you. He promised those on the day of Pentecost, prior to the day of Pentecost, he promised those who were in Jerusalem just prior to his ascension that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in the world. And this is precisely what happened in Acts 2. and continues to happen to his day. His people are empowered to be his witnesses. But perhaps the greatest vindication is seen by a reference to our Lord's resurrection. In Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. According to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. R.C. Sproul says regarding this that the point is that Christ's resurrection vindicated him. By overturning the guilty verdict of this ungodly world court. The world's court judged him to be in the wrong and a liar and a false teacher. But the resurrection proved that he lived a life of perfect righteousness. And those who are identified with Christ's resurrection are also identified with his perfect righteousness. But we read in Romans 4.25... That he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now I want you to understand as we have spoken about the Spirit's work and the life of Christ. We must understand that by no means are these passages teaching some form of adoptionism. Or that Jesus somehow became the Son at uh, the resurrection. Or somehow became the Son at his baptism. Or somehow became the Son... At the incarnation, we must beware of these doctrines that would subordinate the Son and cause Him to lose His equality with God. May the Spirit of God make very plain to you this day that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the God-man. And may the Spirit of God make very clear to you that Jesus has been risen from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, for apart from believing that Jesus has arisen from the dead, 
You cannot be saved. Romans 10 verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. The Lord Jesus. Shall believe in thine heart. That God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. So I ask you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus has come. And lived the life that you could not live. Do you believe that he has not only lived the life you could not live, but he died the death that you should have died? And then he rose again, and he has ascended into the heavens. Do you possess this perfect righteousness that is given as a gift to those who believe? Not only his incarnation, not only his vindication, but another truth we see here we must profess is this observation. He was seen of angels. Seen of angels. One writer said this, that when you examine the life of Christ, one evidence that this is no mere man is the fact that his life and work were witnessed and supported by angels. Jesus lived his life as an incomprehensible spectacle to angels. The God-man was seen of angels. If we go all the way back to the time of creation, Jesus was co-creator with the Father, for all things were made by him and for him. And while the Son of Man was speaking all things into existence by the word of his power and scooping out the oceans and flinging out the stars against the velvet of the dark night, and while he did all that, the sons of God sang, and praised the Lord as he was there creating. But the same angels that were there on the day of creation. They saw the son of man as it were to sin down in the womb of the virgin Mary. And whenever that took place they came to some men. And they declared to these men his name as reign in Luke 1 in verse 31 and 33. They said to these men thou shalt call his name Jesus. And they'll be given to him the throne of his father David. These angels also declared in song. The Messiah had come to be the savior of men. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior which is Christ the Lord. They gave encouragement to the savior while he was tempted in Matthew 4 and verse 11. And while Jesus was about ready to be lifted up on the jacket wood for you and me, Jesus said, I could have called legions of angels to stop this from happening. And just think about one angel in the Old Testament that slaughtered 185,000 rebels. Jesus had these angels at his command. These angels were seen at the time of the resurrection of Christ. For there the angel was upon the stone that was rolled back in Matthew 28. The angels also participated in the glorious ascension of our Lord. When Christ ascended up into the heavens. The ascension of our Lord. I would love to preach a message just one time on the ascension. But the ascension of our Lord is one of my favorite things to meditate and think upon. Just think about it. The God-man, the Lord Jesus, has ascended. The Jesus, the God-man, is there on earth. And as he is on earth, the angels are with him. And by his own innate power, he ascends to the very presence of Almighty God. Not on some 
gigantic airplane or some other bird, but by his own power, he ascends into the very presence of Almighty God. But the angels are not done as regards their ministry to Christ. For we read at that glorious second advent when our Lord returns in Matthew 24 and verse 31, that when the Lord comes in power and great glory, he will send his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds of the heavens. We also read in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 that when the Lord Jesus shall come at his revelation, he will come from heaven with his mighty angels. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first than we which are alive and remain. I ask you, the angels had such interest in the person and work of Christ. I ask you, what interest do you have in our blessed Redeemer? What interest do you have in his person and in his work? Do you long to study the wonders of his grace? For we read in 1 Peter 1, 2, that the angels desire to look into these things. You have a song today that the angels cannot sing. I often think about that refrain in our Hymnal, hymn 86, it says, I, a sinner saved and pardoned, have more cause than they to sing. Listen, my friends, the angels do not know what it is to be redeemed by God's good sovereign grace. God never offered them a redeemer. But we, the fallen sons of Adam's race, know the joy of sins forgiven. We know the joy of what it is to be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. We know the joy of the abiding Holy Spirit dwelling within. We know this joy that no man can take away from us that Jesus has promised. We have seen the Savior's incarnation. We've seen his vindication, his observation. But now notice with me, fourthly, this truth of the proclamation. He was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. As Paul is writing this, he is nearing the very end of his ministry. And he has actually witnessed this proclamation go into all the world. Paul on a couple of occasions acknowledges that the gospel had gone to the known world of his day. Colossians 1, 5, and 6, he speaks about this truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world. In Colossians 1, 23, he speaks about this gospel, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. And this is said as well in the book of Romans, but by no means misunderstand me. Am I saying that the great commission has been fulfilled? But in Paul's day, he said virtually in the known world, in the Roman Empire, the gospel had gone out. But all that Christ is and has done is to be declared to the Gentiles and to the nations. But how is this message that we have to be declared? Well, he says to us, it is to be preached unto the Gentiles. Now, this word that is used here for preached, it literally means to lift up one's voice like a trumpet. It means to be a herald. The actual idea, the etymology of that word carries the idea of being a town crier. And in those particular days, when, whether it be in the village or in the town or in the city, 
when the general of the Roman army had won a great victory, the town crier would come rushing into the middle of the city, the town of the village, and he would lift up his voice. He would say, hear ye, hear ye. The general has wrought a great victory for Rome. And this is the word that Paul used as under the inspiration of the Spirit. And how we are to declare this gospel message. And this is what Jesus has told the church to do. Go ye into all the world and lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare and preach the word to every creature. Every creature needs a preacher to tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see Philip doing the very same thing in Acts 8 and verse 5. He went down into Samaria and he preached. He lifted up his voice in the town center, as it were, and preached to them Jesus. The good news is this, that the gospel can be preached to all the nations because of the power of the Holy Spirit that has come down on the day of Pentecost. And because Jesus has all power and all authority we can take this gospel into the world. The king of heaven is promising to you and I the success of this great commission. But in turn, Christ is preached on in the world, is believed on in the world when he is preached unto the nations. And what a promise is this, that the preaching will be effective to the salvation of God's elect. There will not be one for whom Christ died, for whom Christ shed his scarlet rose red blood for, that will ever be lost. This should then spur us on, spur you and I on to believe that sinners will be saved as the gospel is preached. And the fact that sinners are converted in this day and age, again, attests to the divine claims that Jesus is indeed the God-man. The fact that you sit here saved by God's good grace is a testimony that Jesus is indeed who he truly claimed to be. And I ask you, what are you doing? Christian, what are you doing to see Christ proclaimed to the nations? What are you doing to see Christ proclaimed to your city? What are you doing to see Christ proclaimed to your neighbors and to your loved ones and to your friends? You have this promise. Though he be preached unto the Gentiles, he will be believed on in the world. So I encourage you, go trusting that God will bring in the sheaves. The last thing I want you to see with me is this, is his exaltation. This is another truth we must confess, the exaltation. He was received up into glory. Barnes says this is the crowning grandeur. Of the work of Christ. For the first time. We sang Psalm 24 this morning on purpose. But I think it is a great ascension psalm. For there we have this little discussion that is going on in the psalm. For the first time the Lord Jesus as the God man. Ascends up to the very gates of heaven as it were. And as he stands there from one side of the gate. There is a voice that cries. Who is this king of glory? And from the other side there comes this refrain. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And for the first time in human history. The gates of heaven are swung open. To receive a man. The man Christ Jesus. 
And the Lord Jesus walks, as it were, down that street of gold. And he takes his rightful position on the Father's right hand. And there he is seated on the throne of his father, David. And we are told that as he ascended up into the very presence of God at this ascension and exaltation, that he was given all dominion and power. Daniel 7 and verse 13 and 14. That there was one like unto the Son of Man that ascended up and went up unto the Ancient of Days. We're told there that he went up on clouds. The only time we ever find clouds and the Son of Man coming up on clouds is at his ascension on a cloud of glory. He went up and at that coronation day he was given to him dominion and power. And he is exercising this dominion and rule now. Our Lord Jesus Christ must continue in his reign from heaven until every enemy is crushed beneath his feet. And the last enemy is destroyed, which is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26. What an encouragement this had to be to the early church for an early confession. We understand this. You've been, if you've been in our church long enough, you understand that we are earnestly contending for the faith. But enemies are constantly coming against the church of Christ and against our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that he is the reigning king. And the enemies of Christ will never dethrone him or thwart his sovereign rule. I want you to remember that Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't care what false doctrine it is. I don't care what devil in hell comes against Christ's church. It will not overcome it. For Christ will overcome all of them. Till every enemy is crushed underneath his feet. Every attack against the person and work of Christ will be thrown down and shattered. And every ideology that seeks to exalt itself against Christ will be thrown down and be buried by his infinite power for all of eternity. Oh, my friends, how great. How great is this mystery of godliness. This confession stands as a grand gospel testimony. And this confession provides protection for you and I from heresy. And this confession provides hope of gospel advance and success. This confession is a rock on which you and I can stand for time and eternity. Blessed are you if you can confess these truths with your mouth. Blessed are you if you know this mystery of godliness, the gospel. And those of you that are saved by God's grace, I call you this morning to behold the victory of Christ. Christ has come. He has died. He has arisen. He has ascended. And he reigns. And he has all dominion and is conquering rebels by the power of the gospel. So to all of that I say to you church, let us go onward. Let us go forward with the gospel. Knowing that our king will subdue rebel hearts by his sovereign grace. You say, oh, but preacher, will he do it? Are you not a testimony of it? Are you not a testimony of the conquering grace of Jesus Christ? You that once shook your fist at God and said, I will not have this man to rule over me. I am the captain of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. But there was a day when the gospel came in great power to your own heart. 
And your stubborn will was bent. Your stubborn will was won over by the Lord Jesus Christ. Go trusting. My friends, go trusting, leaving this place, that he will yet save the prodigal that has rebelled. That he will yet save your friends and family that want nothing to do with Christ. That he will yet save communities and nations. For I read in Isaiah 42, 4 regarding the Messiah, that he will not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment or justice in the earth and the isles wait for his law. Jesus is not discouraged. Jesus is not up in heaven biting his nails, twiddling his thumbs, worried about what is going on on earth. Oh no, he is very much in control. And he will not fail nor be discouraged until he has brought justice to this earth. There is hope in the risen Lord. And he is a victorious king that will win and draw the nations to himself. But I cannot but wonder, as your pastor has prayed some moments ago about those that would maybe be outside of Christ, I cannot but wonder if there be someone here who cannot confess these truths as they are found in the text that we have read. I wonder if there be one outside who is a stranger of the gospel. Oh, you may acknowledge and say, oh yes, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. You may acknowledge his vindication, his incarnation, his exaltation. But you've not yet accepted the Savior's invitation. And to you, this very moment, Christ has, as it were, swung open the gates of paradise to you. And he is now extending his hands to you and he is calling out to you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To you, the spirit and the bride say, come. To you, he that heareth, let him come. To you that are thirsty, come. You say, well, preacher, I don't know if I can. The next words are this, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of a life freely. He extends to you the offer of salvation. Maybe you say you cannot and you have not believed on him. You know the truths in your head, but they fail to reach your heart. You may know the confession and the catechism by heart, but you do not know the Savior of whom they speak. You have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. My friend, you need to be born from above. You need the new birth. You need to be saved. You need new life in Christ. And before you can ever make 1 Timothy 3.16 your confession, you need to make another confession. And that is found in Romans 10 and verse 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This confession of the Lordship of Christ must come from your mouth and your heart. You must confess that is declare openly with your mouth that Jesus is a Lord. Declare it openly and believe inwardly that God hath raised him from the dead. I ask you, have you made this confession that Jesus is Lord? Can you sing the hymn, 
Lord of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. I call you to crown him Lord of all, not this evening, not tomorrow, not next week or next year, but I call you to give your life to Christ this moment, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And my friend, if you confess this truth, and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you have a truth that you can stand on. You have a certainty that you can stand on for time and forever. My friends, I encourage you, if you be outside of Christ, don't let this day pass without knowing that Jesus is your Savior. He is so willing to save if you but call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths of the Bible that we have read and we have thought upon. I thank you for the great Savior that we could even speak about. The one that made the stars a staircase and came and dwelt among men. The one that was vindicated by the Spirit. The one that was seen of angels. The one that was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. We thank thee, O God, that we can speak about him. We thank thee that he is still ruling and reigning today. And Lord, that we have no need to worry or to fret, for he will not grow faint nor discouraged till he hath set justice in the earth. And God, I pray for those that would be outside of Christ, that if there be anyone here that, oh God, today you would open up their eyes, just as you opened up the eyes of Lydia, to receive the truths that were spoken from your word, that today they would take the nail-scarred hand of Christ, and receive him as their Savior and their Lord. God, I pray, continue to be with us throughout the remainder of our afternoon. We might know the good hand of God resting upon us. Lord, continue with us now, we ask. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.